I'm excited to talk to you today, uh, second in a series of messages, although you didn't know we had started a new uh, series last week, uh, on uh, our identity and the identity of the one that we serve. And last week we looked at uh, Isaiah 61, and you can tell from the first slide that uh, this week we're looking at Isaiah 42 which I quoted, but it wasn't in your outlines, it wasn't on the screen. And I want to spend some time just looking at something that the Lord Jesus said was what he was all about, what he came to do. So we're going to read together just Isaiah 61 that we looked at last week. And I want you just to listen And when we look at Isaiah 42 and look at the, the echoes, the resonance of some of the very identical language of what Jesus came to do on our behalf. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He sent me to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. The anointed king, the anointed servant of God is speaking in this passage. In Isaiah 42 on the next page, uh, God himself is speaking and he introduces this uh, same person who is speaking in chapter 61 in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Uh, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth with all that springs from it, and who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon 
those who sit in darkness. Well, if you kept your notes from last week, you'll be in good shape because you'll know the fill-ins for this week because the fill-ins for Isaiah 42 are identical to the fill-ins we had last week for Isaiah 61, except it's a completely different passage. And uh, the way we're going to look at it, the the things we're going to hopefully draw out of it uh, are going to be a a little bit different. Um, uh, Students of Isaiah have identified uh, five different uh, sections of Isaiah that they call the the servant songs. And the first one is Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, the servant songs that tell us about the servant of the Lord who came uh, as an individual to represent uh, Israel as a nation, to sort of stand in for them and to do for them and then for us what we were not able to do on our own. And uh, one writer suggests, though, that Isaiah 61 is a fifth and a final song that brings the whole series to a climax, and I think he's correct. And so Isaiah introduces, if you'd write down uh, number one, five characters, and it's five characters in the human story, five characters in the human story, the story of all of our lives, the story of how we go about uh, doing what it is that we do. He says, this is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And so you see some references that I've added in there about the fact that uh, as we open the pages of the New Testament, they've recognized that the servant that was uh, described by Isaiah, or in this case, uh, Isaiah presenting the very words of uh, God himself, here is my servant, here is my chosen one, in whom I delight, uh, are drawn upon by the friends and followers of Jesus. When they think of his life, they think of what they experience in his presence. But when you think about the coming of the, the Son of God, of Jesus himself, the Son of David, the one who came to, to uh, rule and to reign, there is... Uh, some remarkable language that's going on here. The first one that's a little bit lost in the TNIV translation is, here is my servant. Not very dramatic, here's my servant. Uh, It's a little more dramatic uh, often if you think of it in Isaiah, because all through Isaiah in his prophetic writings, uh, that word uh, is often translated, behold, Uh, It is, uh, Eugene Peterson says, it is a call to attention. Listen to this. That sounds a little different than, uh, here's the servant. This is, uh, in our parlance today, maybe kids might say, check this out. Click here. Pay attention. Wake up. This is a servant. It's the prophet's primary task to simply get us to pay attention to God. Let me say that again so I make sure I have your attention. Eugene Peterson again says, it is the prophet's primary task simply to get us to pay attention to God. God comes to us, but we are distracted, busy, preoccupied. The prophet's primary task is to pay attention to the presence of God in our world and in our lives. Before he can tell us about God, he has to 
get our attention that God is present here. Pay attention. Peterson suggests then that there's a second word that's equally essential and equally important, and it's that word servant. Here is my servant. That's the form in which God deals with you and I and with his creation. Uh, Again, Eugene Peterson. Servant is a word with low, even humble connotations. It usually includes loss of freedom, economic restriction, a demeaned status. No one wants to be a servant. But in this passage of the prophet, servant becomes a major term. It's the key word in a series of four or possibly five that focus on the way God works in this world as he deals with men and women in a redemptive way. It is one of the most prized and celebrated words for God in the Bible, but it is also difficult to assimilate in its entirety. We know the dictionary definition of servant, but a servant is one who does things for other people. He or she is a slave in some cultures, in others the lowest person on the economic ladder. When we think of God, we instinctively think of the highest, right? Power and might and glory. He's the one who is supernatural. And often when things go wrong, we say, why, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he intervene? Why, why doesn't he do something in keeping with his position as God of the universe? Well, a central concept in the Christian concept of God has always been that God is doing something. He is never inactive or silent, but he does not receive his directions from us. He does not conform his actions to our desires. But if we change our question to what is God doing and where, we get the prophet's answer. Behold, my servant. The God who in his majesty, strength, and wisdom is beyond our imaginations has chosen to work primarily as a servant who is almost beneath our imaginations, so far beneath that we don't even notice him. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. So Isaiah introduces five characters in the human story. The first, as was uh, said of Isaiah 61 last week, the first is the sovereign Lord. God himself is behind this servant. He is the one who puts his spirit on the servant. So the sovereign Lord, letter A, is the primary character. And letter B, the second character in the human story, whether we have eyes to see the, the, uh, all the protagonists that are in our, our everyday lives, uh, the story of our lives, the second character is the spirit of the living God. Because in the halfway through verse 1, he talks about the servant. Then he says, I will put my spirit on my servant, and he will bring justice to the nations. I will put my spirit on my servant, and something of order will come to the chaos. It reminds us of the first chapter of Scripture, the first couple of verses of Scripture in Genesis 1, 
where uh, we read that uh, creation uh, originally was uh, just formless. It was empty. It was uh, sort of pointless and meaningless. Uh, but the Spirit of God came and, and brooded like a, like a mother hen over creation. And God began the creative act with the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the heart of God putting uh, together and bringing order to chaos. Well, that's going to happen here. I'm going to put my spirit on this servant, and he will bring order, if you will, order to the nations. He will bring what everybody wants is justice to the nations. He's going to encourage and bless people. And you see the refer- one of the references there is in Matthew 12, where this section of Scripture is actually quoted from uh, verses 1 through 4 in Matthew at 12:21 uh, but also Genesis 12:3 where we're given for the first time uh, Abraham is given an extraordinary promise uh, God says I'm going to bless you he says I'm going to bless your descendants and through your descendants he said to a fatherless man a man who with his wife Sarah was childless and quite advanced in age right He said to this childless man with just the two of them getting together for dinner every evening that through your descendants, actually it's singular, through your descendant, all nations of the world will be blessed. Isaiah picks up this theme, this motif about bringing a blessing to other people, bringing a blessing even not simply to the people of God as we call them, the nation of Israel, those who are followers of God, he will bring justice to everyone. He will bring justice to the nation. We have the sovereign Lord. We have the spirit of the sovereign Lord. We have, uh, let us see, his anointed servant. And the remainder of this passage describes uh, what this servant does, what this servant on whom the spirit rests does first of all he will bring justice to the nations deeply needed but we wonder how it would be even possible for him to do that then verse 2 some stra- a couple strange verses i think these first these next two verses he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets and i think the first time that i i, I look at this i think of the fact that jesus uh, comes uh, to serve to seek and to save that, that which is lost. And so he doesn't speak at, like a lamb to the slaughter, we'll read elsewhere in Isaiah. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he does not uh, open his mouth. He doesn't speak in his defense. He doesn't correct people for their confusion. He, he speaks to his father in intercession for those who are attacking him. He says, Father, forgive them. That's my prayer, forgive them. My prayer is, in that situation, my prayer would be, Father, stop them, or possibly, Father, smite them, <laughs> or possibly, like the two disciples, the sons of thunder, Father, destroy them, because they're harming me. And Jesus' prayer is, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. But I think there's something even deeper that's coming out. He will not shout or cry out. He, he, will, he will not raise his voice in the streets. Another quote from uh, Eugene Peterson is uh, that the picture is of a true 
servant. He goes to work quietly and deferentially. He walks down the street and speaks in soft, conversational tones. There is no hard sell. I love this. There is no hard sell with this servant. No loud argument with anyone who chooses to deny or to ignore him. In great gentleness, he goes about his work. Another writer, uh, Alec Motier from Great Britain, went to be with the Lord uh, recently, a wonderful Old Testament student, said uh, this is the quintessential servant, and here is quintessential service, forecast by Isaiah, but exemplified perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is to be reproduced in all who would serve the Lord with true service. This service is at first unostentatious, unself-advertising. If a distinction is to be intended in the three verbs here, shout, cry out, raise his voice, uh, the Hebrew verb suggests that which startles, shout, screaming for your attention, or cry out to raise one's voice is uh, indicating an attempt to dominate or shout others down. And the third verb, raise his voice, make his voice heard, maybe here suggests self-advertisement. I love election season, which now goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for four years. Uh, it's a wonderful advancement we've done on the election process. But I get amused when a candidate shows up in an ad talking about his or her greatness, <clears throat> and then they always end with the same thing. You know, my name is, you know, pick a, pick a candidate, whoever it is, my name is such and such, and I approve this message. Well, you've been talking. What? Of course you approve this message, right? But kind of the nature of politicians is to get people to pay attention to what they're saying, to get people to get to know who they are. And I think it's remarkable that this servant does not say, I am Jesus, God's servant, his chosen one, the one in whom the Father delights, and I approve this message. He just wanted to communicate, just wanted to let you know that you know I paid for this ad. He doesn't scream at people. He doesn't... Uh, cry out. In the word shout, I love the fact that shout, uh, Dr. Motier, Professor Motier says it is a verb that means to shriek. <laughs> he screams. Right now uh, we have on uh, the uh, NBA All-Star game tonight. Uh, yesterday we had on the, the various uh, other components of that, like the three-point shooting contest or the dunk contest. And uh, many athletes make a big show when they perform well. Uh, and uh, there's screaming, there's shouting, there's crying out, there's pounding the chest. And uh, I'm reminded of a story of one of my favorite ball players. Uh, growing up, uh, my favorite ball player was Willie Mays, number 24 for the Giants. And when my son grew up, he'd never seen Willie Mays play, but he'd seen another 24 whose name was Ken Griffey Jr., who played with a similar kind of uh, remarkable quality, and he had the five tools of of uh, hitting, uh, throwing, catching, uh, hitting with power, and running. And uh, he was a delight to watch, and he enjoyed playing. 
But the first time he, when he was a, a younger uh, person and uh, in uh, youth league or high school, I'm not sure which, he hit a home run and he danced and pranced and uh, showed off as he rounded the bases. And he came back to the dugout and then after the game, uh, his dad approached him who was Ken Griffey Sr., who some of us are old enough to remember playing on the great uh, Cincinnati Reds teams in the uh, 60s and 70s. And uh, he came to his dad expecting a lot of praise for a home run, because that would make sense. But his dad just pulled him aside and said, next time act like you've done it before. Don't draw attention to yourself. Act like you've done it before. And he, and he did. But athletes and actors, I feel bad for actors. Every weekend they have to get together with other people who tell them how great they are. It must be tiring to get those tuxes every week to talk about it. But we have, I, I think we have representatives of, of people in our culture who like to make a lot of noise about themselves. If we're honest, if we're honest, maybe sometimes we'd like to make a little noise about ourselves to focus attention on ourselves, This servant is there to serve others, so he doesn't shriek, he doesn't scream, he doesn't yell, trying to overpower, trying to power up on people and overcome them, to, trying to insist on his way. The intention is to create, again, Dr. Motir, a cumulative F emphasis on a quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening, Ministry, Jesus comes to set us at ease. You know, when we're interacting with a child, a child that we haven't met, but it may be a child that we, that we have met, we sometimes get down on their level. Uh, this uh, Valentine's Day, we've got uh, uh, our kind of extended family uh, for family night uh, was uh, the night before Valentine's Day. So I just got little flowers, uh, a little combination of flowers for, for all the women who were there. The, the guys got candy and chocolate, so they, they were covered. But, you know, the, so with little Ellis, who was the youngest uh, one of the, uh, of the group of uh, four uh, grandkids who was there that night, I got down on my, on my knees to get her uh, the flowers because that's the way you kind of communicate that, you know, you're on someone's level. And isn't it extraordinary that the God of all creation, the God who put together the universe, the multiverse, all of the creation that we see and are baffled and amazed by, he stoops down to listen to us. He comes down uh, uh, on his knees to interact with us. Eugene Peterson translates uh, John 1 uh, as... Uh, the word says that the word took on human flesh. He says, uh, God moved into our neighborhood. I love that. This is a beautiful picture of what God is like, who God is, that God is uh, not simply uh, high and lifted up, but he is a servant too. And Jesus came and showed us what the Father looked like. You remember, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But there's a second verse that follows. It's verse 3. And that verse is a little strange, I think, in our culture too. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So back to Professor Motier. Uh, 
To this servant, he says, nothing is useless. Even the bruised reed, even that reed that uh, however it came to be crushed isn't the point. It's useless as a support. It's useless for anything else. You might think of the fact that we have now shifted in our culture uh, away from using plastic straws, which function, right, when you put them into liquid. And there's a good reason for it, right? Uh, but while now we use paper straws, which function for uh, about 60 seconds or uh, as long as it takes to insert them into the liquid that you're trying to drink, right? And then it's wet paper. And some of us feel like wet paper, that we don't have the strength to support anything, that we don't have uh, what it takes uh, to kind of continue, and it just shows his kindness and his grace as he approaches those who were, who were bruised and broken by light. A smoldering wick, that's the candle that's just about burned itself out. I feel like this every once in a while. <laughs> Do you? Uh, I know Rick Warren likes to say, uh, uh, he who burns the candle at both ends is not very bright. And that, that kind of works too, doesn't it? But I love the fact that God's desire is not to snuff me out when uh, my bulb is getting a little dull. And he is doesn't find even anything like a smoldering wick too far gone. This words tell us not what the servant is to do, but it tells us what he is not to do. Scream, cry out, raise his voice. He will not break a bruised reed. He, he will not kind of snuff out a smoldering wick that's on its, uh, its last legs. Eugene Peterson, who preached a, uh, a sermon uh, many, many years ago at his uh, little church that he was at before he became very widely known for his writing and especially for, uh, uh, for his uh, translation of Scripture called The Message. Uh, he goes about his work with great gentleness. This is no hard sell. He, he will not break a bruised reed, which is a person who has little resistance. They will not be taken advantage of. Do you ever meet with people uh, in an earlier era of our lives, they used to come to our doors, and then more likely anymore, they, they come through our phones, or now that's even more difficult, so they come through our emails. Uh, and they come to put pressure on us, and they come to kind of tell us that our, our lives are empty and bereft without their indispensable product. And some people who do that are, are noble because they're trying to serve other people, but some people are just trying to make you feel bad. Some people like to kind of power up and uh, make you feel like you're privileged that you're being manipulated. You are maybe a person, uh, sometimes you feel like you wish you had more resistance to be taken advantage of. But a person, uh, Peterson writes, who might seem like a pushover, a dimly burning wick, this servant will not coerce. There is no element of necessity or force in his approach. His servitude is total. There are no humans alive, no matter how 
uh, weak or useless, before whom he does not stand as a servant. Jesus recognized that Palm, um, Palm Sunday coming into town doesn't come on a war horse, doesn't ride in a chariot with thousands of horses. He comes intentionally on a donkey. He comes in humility. He comes unostentatiously. He doesn't come to power up on us. He comes and when asked his purpose, says Matthew 20, 28, uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all humanity. What do we see when we see God? Do you want to see God in action? Eugene Peterson again. He says, look at Jesus. Because Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Now this is indeed the God of Isaiah 40, the God who sits above the earth in power and might, who holds the nations in the palm of his hand, to whom the peoples of the earth are a drop in the bucket. But what do we see when we see Jesus? We see God in action in the world. We see him in action as a servant. And so we just think about the characteristics of his life. He was born in an unimportant town in the least significant kind of buildings, a stable. He, after he was born, is, moves to a despised part of the country in Galilee, an unsavory town called Nazareth. As he grew up, he took a blue-collar job as a carpenter. He achieved a, some measure of notice as an adult when he was a, a rabbi with several men and women following him. But even then, he went out of his way to reject marks of status for himself by touching lepers washing the feet of his followers, befriending little children, letting, of all people, women become prominent in his entourage, and finally being crucified under the most humiliating circumstances. Everything about Jesus spoke of, certitude, of servitude. He said things that led some to proclaim him the Son of God. He performed healings that were consistent with those words, but the form he took was that of a servant. There was nothing flashy or overwhelming about the life of Jesus. He was unobtrusive. He was quiet. He did not break any bruised reeds or quench any dimly burning wicks. In St. Paul's word, even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto with white knuckles, something to be, to be uh, ex exerting all of your effort to hang onto. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of the likes of you and I human beings, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus came to show us how to live. Anointed with the Spirit of God, so that uh, according to 1 Samuel 16, when David was anointed, as Saul had been earlier anointed, we read uh, a, another, a second time that the Spirit 
when he was anointed with oil, the Spirit of God came on David and earlier had come on Paul uh, with power from that day on. And yet, his servant, service empowered by the Holy Spirit was on behalf of other people. And as I read the fact that he doesn't shout, cry out, raise his voice in the streets, out in public, drawing attention to himself or trying to power up on other people, trying to uh, manipulate and coerce them because I think his verbal skills were such that he could have easily done that. And he doesn't come to people who, who uh, are bruised and broken. He's not going to break them. He comes to people whose light is about to flicker out. He doesn't snuff that out. And I thought of how all of this so beautifully reflects Jesus, and I think it's why the followers of Jesus recognized this resonance and used these scriptures from the Hebrew scriptures to help them understand who Jesus was. And so uh, a third of the way through Matthew, in Matthew 11, we read this extraordinary passage where Jesus says, all things, Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, all things have been committed to me by my, by my Father. All things have been committed to me by my Father. He says, in other words, I'm now in charge. There's a new sheriff in town. Now on earth, when someone is given power, someone is given authority, it often changes how they behave and how they think, how they speak, how they treat other people. All things have been committed to me by my Father. In fact, no one knows the Son except the Father, and, and no one knows the Father except the Son. What an extraordinary privilege. He says, the Father in heaven, only I know him. Only I truly know him. Well, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So, God has given all things, committed all things to me. And the next thing he said is so staggering. He doesn't power up. He doesn't, he doesn't try to verbally overpower people. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Because you and I get weary and burdened in everyday life, don't we? Uh, we have good days, we have bad days, we have some better days, we have some worse days. But life can be tiring. And he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened. Th these are the people he's going he's gonna to establish his kingdom uh, utilizing. Tired people, burdened people, weary people. But he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Then he says something that if you're weary and burdened, you might not want to hear, take my yoke upon you. <laughs> in 1 John, John's dear friend, uh, Jesus' dear friend, uh, John the Elder, says uh, about Jesus, his commands, in the old King James translate, his commands are not burdensome. What he asks us to do will not crush us. Come to me, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. When we take his yoke, we learn to share our life with him, uh, and we realize that he's carrying the heavier load. 
Sometimes I'm carrying something into the house and one of my grandkids wants to help me. It usually causes more trouble than it's worth, right? It's like more awkward to kind of pause and, and you've got to kind of carry, you know, with two hands a little bit in case they drop their side. But they love to be partners in the engagement and that's what we are to God. He says, take my oath, share with me uh, my vision and my grand redemptive mission in the world. And then he says this, learn from me. Learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle and humble in heart. Is there ever anyone who walked the face of the earth who arguably doesn't need to be gentle? He's the God of all creation. He was with God. He was God from the beginning. He took part in the creation of all things, and yet he's gentle and humble in heart. And a second time he says, extraordinary promise, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. Why? Because my yoke, it's easy. It fits well. You'll find it's lighter than you expect. My burden is light. And then three times he talks about justice. At the end of verse 1, God says, my servant anointed by my spirit, will bring justice to the nations. The last line of verse 3, in faithfulness, my servant will bring forth justice. And then verse 4, he will not falter or discourage until he establishes justice on earth. Until what is done on earth is what is done in heaven. Until on earth as it is in heaven becomes a reality. And in his teaching then, the islands, the nations of the world will put their hope. So if we go down to the bottom again, we have the sovereign Lord, letter A. We have the spirit of the sovereign Lord, letter B. We have God's anointed spirit, anointed with the Holy Spirit. And if you notice, I said last week in Isaiah 61.1 and following, that every person of the Trinity is involved, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you notice in Isaiah 42, verse 1, every person of the Trinity is involved, Father, Son, and Spirit. But the other people that are in view in this passage, like Isaiah 61, letter D, are broken and crushed people. And what is this servant's heart toward broken and crushed people? He will not overpower them. He will not scream them into submission. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. In fact, he is the one who tells us, listen, look, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we're just getting started, he's there with us. When we're finding the going is getting heavy, he's always with us. When we approach the closing of our season of time here on earth, he's there. He sustains. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death so we do not have to fear evil. He's there with broken and crushed people. He's there to serve. But then he wants to bring about 
justice. Three times, justice, justice, justice. In the words of uh, Proverbs 1.5, he is someone who does what is just and right and fair. He speaks to broken and crushed people and he strengthens them so that we can bring justice to the nations. So that we can do what Jesus modeled for us and live our lives as servants for other people. It's not all about us. Verse 6 tells us, I, the Lord, will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. It's not all about us. Some people object to the exclusivity of God telling the people of Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. But he wants them to be a people who are a light for other people. A light for the Gentiles. To do that, I want you to open eyes that are blind. There are people in our sphere of influence who are not seeing clearly the way ahead of them and who are stumbling and tumbling, lost and confused, dazed and disoriented. He wants us to open eyes that are blind. He wants us to free captives from prison, people who are trapped, people who can't make progress in their life. And he wants us to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So he sends us, if you will, letter E, he sends us to our broken communities and our shattered world. Isaiah begins, here is my servant, behold my servant, pay attention to my servant. We, we want to be a servant, we don't want to be a servant, we want to be a, a master, we want to be large and in charge, but we're followers of the servant. And we should be known, even in our culture, in our neighborhoods, our, our relationships, marriages, families, we should be known as servants to work quietly. No hard sell, no loud argument with anybody who chooses to ignore us or disagree with us, to live with great gentleness. And we can only do that as we're filled with the Spirit of the living God. Let's pray. Living God, we ask you to help us be a servant. You sent your son in the form of a servant. He took the form of a servant in order to teach us how to live. He could have wielded his authority like a sledgehammer, but he came to serve. We ask you that you would fill us with the spirit of the living God, the one that the New Testament actually comes to call the Spirit of Jesus. And help us learn what it means to be a servant of others. We ask this in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's children said, Amen.